Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show. Let's not mess around. Let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet American film director, production designer, and screenwriter Catherine Hardwick. Her directorial work includes movies that you know and really like, like 13, Lords of Dogtown, the mega-hit Twilight, Miss Bala, and Prisoner's Daughter, among many others. Today, she's here to talk about her latest film, Mafia Mama, a movie I described as having the same kind of themes as How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Eat, Pray, Love, only with 100% more gunplay and slapstick violence. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Barbie Latson-Nado. She's worked as the Rome Bureau Chief for Newsweek magazine and currently holds that position for the Daily Beast. She's an on-air contributor for CNN and a writer for Scientific American. She's also a true crime novelist with a book called The Godmother about the rise of women in the mafia. Publisher Weekly calls it a must for true crime fans, and it is a great read. First, though, let's meet Steve Ryan. He began his policing career at just 18 years old, and after 30 years of working on the force, two-thirds of that working as a detective, he retired and began a career with CP24 as a crime specialist. In his book, The Ghosts That Haunt Me, he reflects on just a few of the many cases that have greatly impacted him. He remembers six cases, seven people whose lives were senselessly taken, that he still thinks about nearly every day. While those stories are hard to tell, they were harder to live through. Steve Ryan joined me via Zoom. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. You investigated over 100 homicides. How did you choose the six cases that you write about in The Ghosts That Haunt Me? Well, you never forget. No homicide investigator forgets about any of the cases that they do. But there are some that stay um, with you day in and day out. And it's because of the manner in which they were murdered. And it's because of the fact that they were murdered because they were women or girls. And they were just doing normal everyday stuff but somebody who they knew betrayed their trust so i could write a book on all of them but i had to narrow it down to six and these were the six that really really did affect me and and continue to do so yeah you talk about that in the book and uh, we did a live on stage interview a few weeks ago uh, where you talked about how you never forget the details and they're are things that that I hadn't really thought of, but you mentioned smell and you mentioned, you know, not only just some of the gruesome visual things that you see, but there's all sorts of things that go into that that just seem to embed themselves into you like a hook. Yeah, that that is true. I, I mean, I think we, we talked about this the last time we met. I can remember the color tie I was wearing at certain cases. I can remember the song, a song that was on the radio when I pulled up to the scene or what exact time it was when I went to do a death notification because these things are so traumatic that your brain, my brain anyway, uh, has a way of just not forgetting about those uh, events. And as a homicide detective, do you come up with coping mechanisms that help you just deal with those feelings and, and those memories that invade your brain? Well, back in the day, you just dealt with them. Now, from what I understand, there's a lot more mental health therapy or mental health counseling for those that want it. But back then, you just kind of sucked it up and you just went along with your day. And it wasn't until I left the job some 30 years later, uh, 13 of those in homicide, that I realized, wow, what was that that I experienced? And uh, I felt the need to talk about it and talk about those victims and give them a voice because they are, after all, they, we're all just more than just a headline. 
And did it feel like a, a weight had been lifted in a sense? It did. It, the weight was lifted because I wasn't responsible for those cases. And I wasn't the person mm. that was in the witness box for uh, days on end being cross-examined by some of the most skilled cross-examined uh, lawyers, uh, defense counsel rather, in, in the GTA. Um, but I still have those feelings when I go to a scene now to describe it for our viewers. I still know what the detective's going into. I know what the body removal when it drives past behind me and I say, there goes body removal. I know what's in the back of that. I know what the officers are seeing at the autopsies. So I think once you're a homicide detective, you're forever defined as a homicide detective. What are the qualities that make a good homicide detective? I would say tenacity, attention to detail are two of them. And you need to be able to put the, the, the human element aside. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is there's all kinds of time to to grieve for what you saw, which is what I'm, which I would say what I'm doing now. But mm -hmm. in the moment, you have to put that aside and get the facts, be tenacious, be sympathetic, and just be cautious of everything that you were seeing and doing and knowing full well. And you must be able to articulate what you do because everything that you do as a homicide detective, you must describe at some certain point when it comes to court. And so you don't have those notebooks. I, I assume you're writing everything down in notebooks. You aren't able to keep those once you retire. Uh, but the book has a great deal of detail. So all that is just still bouncing around in your head? Everything that I write about is uh, in my head. It's talking to my family about uh, what I saw, what, what I said I saw, if they overheard me. And a lot of it is just research from online. But the majority of what I read what I wrote about, rather, is uh, just comes straight from my heart. You're listening to Steve Ryan on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Ghosts That Haunt Me, is available wherever you buy fine books. Was writing this book, then, a catharsis for you? Do you feel you're in a different place now, after the book, than you were when you started writing it? That's a good question, and thank you for that question. And I would say yes. And the only way that would be the case, though, was if I was honest with myself, with how these cases affected me, affected my family life. Um, so as long as I stay true to that, yes, it was very cathartic because it was the most honest I've ever been with myself when it came to how being a homicide detective affected me uh, mentally. And is there advice that you would give to someone? You started in the police department when you were 18 years old. So is there advice that you would give to someone uh, who wanted to become a police officer and possibly work themselves up into homicide or, or uh, one of the other uh, big departments? Well, policing itself, and I wrote about this in the book, policing itself, it's a noble profession, but what you need to realize in policing is that you cannot save the world. And oftentimes when even a uniform car is called to a scene, the damage is already done. Now mm -hmm. you fast forward that to homicide. You cannot save the world. When I'm called to a homicide scene, somebody's already dead. A family's already grieving. All you can do is try to provide answers to the family. But for the most part, a lot of policing is reactive as opposed to proactive. Right. And you say that if you had your way, if you were running things, uh, that you wouldn't really spend a great deal of time in any one department, maybe three years as a homicide officer, and then you would move on. Um, I get why that is, but I also think that, you know, after three years, aren't you just getting into the, to the groove of it? Aren't you just becoming the best homicide cop that you could be? Well, it's easy for me to say that now, now that I've, been away from the job for six years but mm -hmm. if i was in charge i know and i'm not in charge and nobody ever asked me this this is just my opinion yep. being removed from it now i would say three to four years max 
and then you need to get out. It doesn't matter how good you are because when you are the guy, there's always going to be somebody else that you can train to be the next guy mm. or girl. So it's easy to get caught up in the addiction of being that person, the thrill of chasing a killer. Um, but being there for 13, 14, 15, some guys 20 years, it's far too long. For your mental health, that is, it's far too long. And I think a lot of times you don't realize that until you get away from the job and you kind of go, holy cow, what was that I just did for the last 15 years? You talk a little bit about uh, some superstitions. At least I think it's a superstition. You wear pink quite often. And uh, it's not just a style choice. This has something to do with you and your work as a detective. Yeah, for sure. So I've always liked uh, the color pink in a, in a tie or on a, on a golf shirt. Um, but it was in 2012. I was wearing a pink tie and I had a case. And a young boy who was a family member of a, a sibling that was brutally murdered, he asked me why I wore that tie, why I wore pink. And I told him I wore pink because it brought me luck. And he asked for the tie. So I took it off my neck, put it on his neck, and he wore that for the entire jury deliberation, which was about a week. So ever since then, I see pink as uh, a sign of hope. And I call it, it's my SR, Steve Ryan project, whereby <laughs> the hope is that we will always good will always overcome evil. And that might be something that might go on forever. Maybe it'll never happen. But as a homicide detective, if you don't believe that um, good is going to trump evil, you're, you'll, you'll never get your head off the pillow. So right. that's why pink, that's what it represents to me. In the book, you say, investigating these kinds of things makes a person untrusting and uh, feeling like nobody is safe from the evil lurking among us. Uh, and that there is no way to know when someone with fatal intentions enters your life. Has that feeling gone away a little bit as you've stepped away from the day-to-day -day of investigating uh, murders and crime on a daily basis? I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense. Yes, I recognize that that's not normal behavior. That's not normal thought to have, that everybody in your surroundings is a, a murderer. Everybody is a child abductor. But when you're in that work, that's all you know. So you tend to think that everybody is one of those suspects. So it's a struggle for me to this day to just give my head a shake and say that that's not the reality. Yes, there are dangers out there, but not everybody out there is, is wanting to harm you or your, your children. So that's a struggle with me, but I recognize that struggle today. I didn't recognize that when I was on the job. Do you think you'll write another book? I just might, Richard. I just might. Give it, given the feedback I got on this book and uh, the, the way I was able to express my feelings on paper, yeah, I think I just might. Well, we'll look forward to it. Thanks uh, for doing this, Steve. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Steve Ryan on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Ghosts That Haunt Me, Memories of a Homicide Detective, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Let's meet Barbie Latsanado. She's an American journalist and author who's lived in Rome since 1996. She's the Rome bureau chief for the Daily Beast and has written books about the criminal trials of Amanda Knox and the tragic journeys of Nigerian women trafficked for sex in Italy. Her latest book is The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women. It contains the until now untold stories of the women who have risen to prominence and notoriety in Italy's mafia, many more ruthless than the fathers and husbands they've replaced. It also tells the story of the octogenarian murderer who decades ago blazed a bloody trail for them to follow. Publishers Weekly calls it a must-read for true crime fans, and it is a great read. Check this out. 
1955, in a public market outside Naples, Italy, a pregnant teenage widow named Assunta Pupetta Maresca encounters a man that she believes to be her husband's killer. Minutes later, police find the man dead, riddled with an astonishing 29 bullets. Pupetta is arrested and convicted for his death. I killed for love, she says in court, and I'd do it again. Barbie Latza Nado fills in the rest of the story as she joins me via Zoom from Rome. What makes Santa Popetta Marquesca so chillingly compelling as a character in the book? I, I think because she was so human when I met her. Um, you know, I, I sat with her many, many times in her house in southern Italy. And what made her so compelling to me was the fact that I liked her. She's a killer. She's a liar. She's all these sorts of things. She had an incredible past. She did horrible things. She wasn't sorry for any of it. But she was so nice. And and I think that that's, that's what makes a lot of the women in the book compelling is that they're human on some level. And while that doesn't, I don't want to glorify organized crime and murder, um, the people who get caught up in organized crime are often, you know, it's not a choice and they are human beings. And you did not feel at all like you were being manipulated, like you were being given uh, a, a public face because she knew that you were going to be writing about her? Oh, for sure. I think she lied to me a lot. And in fact, every single thing she told me, I tried to go check because, you know, she's got a criminal history. And so there's there are criminal dossiers or lawyers or prosecutors. Yeah. And many, many times she would tell me something and I would go check and it would be an outright lie. And then I would think, OK, so do I call her on it or do I ask her the question again next time? It was kind of like a game. One, she's an old lady by then, yeah. um, by the time I talked to her. But but she was it was all orchestrated sort of it was she she choreographed everything but in doing so she showed me scrapbooks of the you know of the of the clippings of her the crime people wrote about her she showed me her wedding scrapbook so she showed me the human side of her too mm. all the while she's telling me you know you don't understand the mafia you don't understand you don't understand organized crime because you're american because blah 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 so but she she was a human being at the end of it and what was her reaction when you first approached her? I would guess that someone who has kept scrapbooks of <laughs> clippings of all their mentions probably was flattered that you wanted to talk to her. Yeah, but she wanted money because now she she tried to monetize everything and her daughter very much tried to monetize things. And I said, and I convinced her, I, I, you know, she was lived in this horrible little town on the, near the Amalfi coast, which should be beautiful, but in fact, it wasn't. Um, and I found out where she lived through a police contact I had. And so I went to her coffee bar because everybody has a coffee bar in Italy. You always go to the same coffee bar. And I started running into her there and making a conversation. And I would say, oh, I read about you. You know, I'm an American journalist. And I speak Italian. So it was easy enough. And then and and I said, she said, oh, I don't want to do interviews anymore. Oh, I don't do any interviews anymore. People have to pay me a lot to do interviews. And, and I sort of stalked her you know in a sense and convinced her that as an american writing about her no americans have ever written about her before north america doesn't know about you pupetta you know um give me a chance let's just have a conversation and then she got really into it then she was then she then she was like tell the americans this tell the north americans this you know then she was then she wanted it so she chose fame over money yeah because i, I imagine that there is an ethical line that you can't cross in terms of paying people for their stories in this sense. 
That's right. I mean, I've done work for a tabloid and this is a book. And so I would never pay for someone for an interview. It, it, there was one person in the book I paid as like you'd pay a fixer. Like say I go to Greece and I don't speak the language. I would pay a fixer to take me around. And there was a woman in Naples who was able to take me into some of these criminal homes and things like that. And I don't speak Neapolitan dialect. So um, in that sense, I, I paid her just like I would hire an assistant. But but I, I know you can't pay for an interview like otherwise it's it's you know then they have some ownership in it then it's a then it's a business deal it's not an interview it's not journalistically ethical i don't think you're listening to barbie latson on the richard krauss show her book the godmother murder vengeance and the bloody struggle of mafia women is available now wherever fine books are sold is there a fearlessness that you need to do this kind of work i when i hear uh, the word fixer i understand what it means but it, it feels to me like you have to have uh you know a, a fair amount of courage to approach these people you say you know you stalk you know well you stalked uh your 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 subject of this book so there's there's lots of 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 elements to this but is there a fearlessness involved I think there's probably more of a stupidity involved than a fearlessness because there were so many times in the book where I thought, oh my gosh, I got this interview. I can't wait to go. And then I would do stupid things like think, oh, I better not take my phone with me because I don't want it to get stolen. Or I better not have my ID with me, you know, stupid stuff like that. And then I'd find myself in these situations thinking, one, nobody knows where I am because I would never tell my kids like where I, I could be something risky. I have two, uh, you know, 20, uh, 20, 22 year old sons. Um, they would have been horrified to know I was doing it. My friends who aren't journalists would have been thought I was an idiot. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing. And in those cases, it's not fearlessness. It's just like, there's a certain sense of egotism, I suppose, where you think nothing's going to happen to you until you're in the moment. And then you think, oh, I could probably die. Yeah. I and wish I had then, my phone. Yeah. I wish I had my phone. Or I wish I had my ID because if there's a drug bust, how am I going to explain that I'm a journalist and not a buyer or something, you know? Um, <laughs> A fearlessness, I think in journalism, especially if you cover crime, it's you have to be able to look at crime and you have to be able to talk to criminals. Otherwise, you can't be a crime writer. And I can, you know, I'm a crime writer. I love I love to cover the mystery of the crime. I don't like the blood, but I like the I like everything behind it. And where did that uh, draw come from for you? When did you first realize this? Do you know, I read when I was a teenager, I read Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the Charles Manson murders. And in fact, I'm rereading it again because I'm I'm working on another project about crime scenes and things like that. And I remember reading the book thinking, oh my gosh, it's so, before you even get to the horrible crime, you got to the, I think the book starts out with something like, you know, the valley was silent. You could hear ice in a cocktail glass or something like that. And I was thinking, oh, it's all, the, the crime is all about everything around it and the people who, did it or who were the victims it's not about the knife wound generally speaking it's about so much more and from that age i was really really interested in the psychology of of, of the criminal mind i was in you know i I'm fascinated by forensics i was fascinated you know fascinated by the crime scenes and by the all of that um and then i fortunate enough i got, you know i worked as a journalist i got a job as a journalist and moved to rome became your chief for newsweek magazine and there were there are lots of crimes here i mean italy's a very dangerous place for crime so in that sense everything sort of fell together but i don't fancy myself um to be an expert on crime but i'm really curious about it by by 
You, you talked about how uh, being an American, uh, that was an advantage for you in this one case. Is that generally the case? It, yeah, I mean, there is something to that about the other about the audience. Also, you know, there is a, there aren't a lot of, of North Americans in Italy as journalists anymore. Most of the bureaus have closed. Um, you know, you, you have a lot of European journalists here, but you don't really get a lot of Americans or Canadians necessarily. Um, and when you, so when you do, and you're going to, you're going to put, write a story about someone, people are more interested, I think. And it definitely also, I think that there's some way that you can kind of hide behind the language. So I could talk to Pupetta and ask her in my, with my American accent in Italian and ask her questions, um, where an Italian would ask them in a different way. So she probably thought, oh, she probably doesn't even understand. She would talk very simply to me and she would be very kind of grandmotherly with me on some level. And I, I do think that I know how to use that to my advantage, let's say, after all these years. That was Barbie Latsanado, author of The Godmother. That's available wherever you buy fine books. My guest in this segment is director Catherine Hardwick. Her films include 13, Lords of Dogtown, the mega hit Twilight. Remember Bella and Edward and the werewolves and the vampires? That lived at the center of popular culture for a very long time. Uh, Miss Bella is one of hers and Prisoner's Daughter, among many others. Today, she's here to talk about her latest film, Mafia Mama, a movie I described as having the same kind of themes as How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Eat, Pray, Love, only with 100% more gunplay and slapstick violence. In the new action comedy, now playing on VOD, Tony Collette stars as Kristen, a suburban mom who unexpectedly inherits her grandfather's mafia empire. I landed safe in Italy. The Colosseum. Oh, what? Where is it? Can we go back? We have to go to the funeral. What did my grandfather do? Via. My dying wish is that you be the new boss the Balbano family. I've got a lot going on at home. My son just went to college and my husband just cheated on me. You want me to take care of him? No! Congratulations on the film. Hey, thank you so much. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, it looks like it. That's the thing that I really liked about this movie is it's light, it's funny, <laughs> uh, but it feels like it was made with a great deal of enthusiasm. And I think that's you know, that's important. Enthusiasm, love, you're absolutely right. Insanity, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have always loved, and we've talked about this before when I've interviewed you, uh, your casting in films. You yes. have an eye for casting, and I think that the director's job is about 90% casting. If you get that right, you have to try really hard to bugger up the rest of the stuff. So in this case, you have Tony Collette. Now, I know that she brought this script to you right. because you've worked together before. But what was it about, A, the script, and about, B, working with Tony Collette uh, that, that sort of brought this to life? Well, Tony is kind of a wild woman. She's <laughs> really fun. She's really enthusiastic, a bit, the biggest heart in the world, and she's playful. You know, mm. she's got that inner kid going. She wants to have fun. She will run with an idea. You know, if you have an idea, let's try this. Let's try this. She's not scared of it. She, she'll go for it. Let me do that. Okay. <laughs> so I thought I had so much fun with her on Miss You Already with Drew Barrymore, and when as soon as she called. 
world. I'm like just reading the script, like imagining her playing this character. And of course, I'm just laughing out loud, thinking of her facial expressions. And then we've seen her so much lately in very serious uh, hereditary or, you know, the staircase getting killed. And I'm like, (laughs) I want to see her having fun again. (laughs) Yeah. And because she hasn't done a great deal of comedy, at least that that comes to that springs to my mind. And in this case, you'd think that she'd been doing. This Every day. She's got that timing, and she's got the facial expressions that are just changing. And, you know, she has more muscles than most people in her face, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. Maybe that's what it is. I couldn't help but think of, like, Lucille Ball a little bit. Was that – did that ever come up in conversation? Because when I was watching Toni Collette in this film, it felt to me like the – physical and the slapstick, and there is, it's fair to say, there's a fair amount of slapstick in this movie. Um, it felt like it was from like a different age almost, and it felt like Lucille Ball to me. It, it could feel like Lucille Ball, especially with the grape stomping scene yeah. from, it's kind of like I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, when you were uh, looking at making this, when you were prepping, um, we don't normally associate you with comedy either. <laughs> I and know. I know you like to genre hop, so you make movies <laughs> and all sorts of different styles, but you haven't done a great deal of comedy. Um, tell me how you approached it. When you're breaking down a script like this, is it different to break down a script that that is pure comedy, like this one is, rather than something like a recent film of yours, like The Prisoner's Daughter, which has lighter moments in it, but is a, a heavier it's drama. It's very intense. So what we did on this one, we had like a little kind of table read workshop over at my house, uh, and we just challenged almost every line in the script. Mm. Is it funny? Could we make it funnier? <laughs> How could we change the character, the, the girlfriend that the guy's cheating on, her husband's yeah. cheating on at the very beginning? You know, she wasn't that funny. She was kind of normal. Like, let's make her a feminist. Let's make her a guidance counselor. <laughs> let's let her offer to help. Tony. So we just try to make every line or every character as deeply kind of hilarious as we could. <laughs> You're listening to Catherine Hardwick on The Richard Krauss Show. Her film, Mafia Mama, is on VOD right now. And you've made so many films now as a director. You were a production designer before this, though. Right. And I think it all plays in. Now, obviously, you're working in film, and that's you know that, there's an obvious relationship there. But as a production designer, I think you have to break down a script and, and look at it in a different way. Right. Uh, and, and so tell me the relationship between that era of your life, that job, and you worked with everybody, man. I, Richard Linklater, Cameron Crowe, David O. Russell, I mean, incredible, incredible filmmakers and movies. Right. And, and so tell me about that era and how it feeds this era. Okay, just being side-by-side, front-row seat, and working with those directors, you know, helping them figure out how, you know, what angles they could shoot mm. at this location. That was a fantastic education. And so I would be taking classes in between every job and writing my scripts and everything, and then watching what they did real time, you know, so I could just learn everything that I could about being a director. But having been trained as an architect and a production designer, it's structural visualization. Mm -hmm. It's pre-visualizing stuff that does not exist. If you're an architect, you go to a blank piece of land, you got to build something or a set. And so this is the same thing. You've really just got a piece of paper. Now, how do I actualize it? How do I make it cinematic, you know? 
I love the idea that uh, through all these careers that you've had, did you actually work as an architect? Oh, yeah. yeah. I built many tons of buildings, really? believe it or not, when I was 21, 22. Wow. I got to build a lot of stuff. What kind of buildings did you uh, I built 120 townhouses around a lake. <laughs> uh, three. I built the lake, the tennis courts. I built an office building, a bunch of houses. No, I was like... Building you real were there, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I, I love though that the 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 connection between all of these jobs that you've had, these elements uh, that have formed your three very kind of specific careers, right. all boil down to a blank page and the potential of the blank page. Exactly. And it, you can't be afraid of the blank page if you're going to be successful at any of those jobs. You kind of just have to dive in, mm-hmm. and then if you start doing something, you can make it better. Keep making it better. Make it better. You get these awesome actors, they make it better. Mm -hmm. You know, the cinematographer has a better idea than you have. Great, let's do it. Is architecture collaborative in the same way that filmmaking is? I don't don't think so, is it? You know, it's kind of funny because when I was in architecture school, I tried to make architectural jam sessions. (laughs) And I tried to like, because I wanted to be like the musicians. They can just go and play. So we would get big piece of drawing paper. Let's draw this. It wasn't quite the same. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so, because I, I think of filmmaking as being so collaborative, you have to, right. you know, if, if you want to make good movies, you want to make interesting movies, ideas are, are gold. And no matter where they come from, uh, they are, they are, you have to put your ego aside. And I guess maybe that's, you, is that the hard part? Yeah, you got to get excited. I mean, it's pretty exciting if somebody does come up with a really cool idea. Yeah. You got to try to be open to it, you know. <laughs> and and that's what, you know, in in the case of Eduardo Scarpetta, for mm. example, the scene he does, he and Tony, they kind of worked out some funny stuff. Be the leopard. Yeah. Girl. <laughs> yeah. And they showed it to me. I'm like, Oh, yeah, we are doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, that's improv before the cameras roll. They improv and showed it to me, and then I was like, mm-hmm, we got to do it. And then also Jenny, the lawyer, yeah. she's super funny. This is her first movie ever, and her first TV show ever is uh-huh. Lord of the Rings, yeah. you know, which is a pretty good start. But anyway, when she, she walks in that courtroom, and she heard the echo, and she started to sing. Right. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Tell me the difference, if you could, uh, between drama and comedy. As I said earlier, we haven't seen you do a lot of, of, of comedy. Right. Are the sets, is the vibe on set different? Uh, well, definitely. Every movie I've done, we've had a very tough schedule because yeah. we never had a giant budget or anything. So you're always like, action. I'm always like, okay, we're in action mode, people. <laughs> we got to keep moving. We got to keep moving. So you have to be tough, but you've got to be able to laugh during that time. So I feel like we actually laughed a lot, believe it or not, on Prisoner's Daughter because really? Kate and Brian are hilarious. Yeah, so, it's a Kate so, uh, yeah. uh, Beckinsale and, and Brian Cox. Yeah, they're both actually quite funny, yeah. you know, so. I'd like to keep it light on every set, but this one, you're trying to find those comedic Mm. moments, so it's even more fun. When you don't have a great deal of money every time out, so if you (laughs) you had $100 million to make this movie, it would be a much different movie. Terry Gilliam told me something one time (laughs) that has always stayed with me. He said in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which he directed, he wanted to have... Uh, King Arthur and his men come over a hill on horseback and look at the castle in the uh-huh. in the distance. But the whole movie was being made for a million dollars, and that scene was going to cost $15,000 or something to get the horses. And he said, we can't do it. So he put them all on broomsticks and had the coconuts, like, you know, 
coming behind him. And he said, now it's the scene in the movie that everybody remembers. If I'd had money, I just would have had him come up over uh, horseback oh, and no horse one would remember the scene. Like I would bland. be a bad yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of challenges do help. I mean, this one was a pretty tight budget and that made us be more like creative. How can we double up? How can we use that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Part of Colette's character growth uh, hinges on her breaking down expectations of her uh, by other people, but also her own expectations of what her life will be. Um, tell me why that storyline is important. I thought it was really fascinating to see this woman that was really a people pleaser and everybody was had low expectations of her actually kind of ignored her mm -hmm. her husband just let her go ahead and work and pay for his lifestyle and the, her cheated on her are terrible her workmates mm -hmm. oh i mean they couldn't be more toxic yeah. masculinity literally even in one scene they go put her on mute yeah they literally silence her voice and don't pay any attention <laughs> to her and think their ideas are so much better which they're so bad <laughs> <laughs> but so I think just watching her go through that and then at one point she says, we're going to have the meeting at this gelato place and that's an order. Mm -hmm. You're like, that's an order. She actually took the power and she owned it, you know, and so that's kind of exciting to see her. And we all kind of need to do that in our lives. Well, yeah. I couldn't help but think while I was watching uh, the scenes, particularly with the, the, the workmates, her boss and oh. a couple of other people. Oh, my God. Uh, I couldn't help but think that maybe that was a reflection of you talking to studio types <laughs> at some point during your career. Oh, You've had yeah. so much success. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure there's people that always think they know a little bit better oh, and they're no. usually wearing suits. Yeah, and you usually, exactly, <laughs> or cool looking outfit. Yeah. Um, but let's say, you know, we go and pitch something, a big fun idea, and people are just, you know, looking yeah. at you like, what? Are you crazy? I need just a little more money, even on Twilight. Mm -hmm. Give me a little more money. I can do this cool action scene. Nope. In fact, we're cutting $4 million from your budget. But that's kind of life. We're always pitching something. So, yes, I could totally relate to that. I thought it was the best idea in the world. How could they not understand? Yeah. Did they not, in that particular case you mentioned with Twilight, did they not understand that they were sitting on a gold mine? Or was it? it we didn't know. Yeah. We didn't know. One day I asked for a little bit more money. And they said, you know, I said, there's a lot of people online seem to be talking about this. They told me the head of the studio said that might be 400 girls in Salt Lake City. Right. They did not know what what it was going to be. You're listening to Catherine Hardwick on the Richard Krause show. Her film Mafia Mama is now on VOD. I'll tell you when I knew. I interviewed uh, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart at a hotel near here somewhere, and I got a phone call from my boss at the television station and said, they're doing a live and interactive interview, which means they're going to come down to the building that we were just in next okay. door, and, uh, uh, and they're going to do an interview uh, on the street in front of the building. Oh, okay. uh, can you go down and just get you know some footage of that? So I grabbed the cameraman, I went down, and they said, there's a few fans around. I get down there. It's been raining all day, so I didn't think there were going to be a huge amount of people there. There were probably 3,000 16-year-olds snaked all around this building 
And so I grabbed the cameraman and I said, in the movie, keep in mind, had not yet opened. It was a week or two away from opening. And I said, uh, you know, let's get some B-roll of, of this crowd. And I had just finished interviewing them. So I went up to these screaming girls that were making the sound that only 16-year-old girls can make. That so excited. Like when you see old footage of the Beatles and you see how yes, excited the yes. audience was, that's what this was like. And uh, I said, and I put my hand on it and I said, I just interviewed them. And because I had just touched Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, they pulled me into the crowd and started mauling me because I was one oh, step away from those God. people. Two weeks before, a week or two before the movie opened. It, it was a wild was, time. We got mobbed in Rome. That was the first time we didn't even realize we were going to get mobbed. And like I'm like trying to dive in front of Rob and I'm trying to protect Chris. And we didn't have any bodyguards or any. We didn't know. You know, it was it was exciting. You know, that must be just a situation like uh, where you just hold on. Oh yeah, there can we be nothing more like, to do. You're just you're on the roller coaster. You can say. Yeah. yeah, I know. Kristen came up to me one day. She goes, "There were people outside my house when I was going to go to breakfast," and you know, just that kind of shock. Like, yeah. what did I step into? <laughs> so I described Mafia Mama as being kind of having some of the same themes of like when Stella got her groove back or yeah. Eat, Pray, Love, but with 100% more gunplay and <laughs> violence. <laughs> Somebody told me it's a feel-good movie with lots of violence. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's a good one. <laughs> It's something, I guess when you're making a film like this, you have to find a way to differentiate yourself in the world of mm -hmm. all these kind of films, and I think you found it. Well, I was, I had, you know, we didn't have the giant budget to do, like, mm. the action that you would see in a John Wick or anything, right. so we had to have that, you know, another personality, but I I thought the idea, like, in the Zoom call scene, where the rage is building, yeah. that frustration is building, and she's hearing it from the male bosses on the other side, and then she's actually getting physically assaulted, too, by... An assassin, mm -hmm. you know, so each At step is yeah. just building, building, building. So that rage just had to come out. I'm like, I'm building, I said, I'm going to build a prosthetic head. I'm building a prosthetic male body part so that I can really get into it. <laughs> You're doing another uh, interesting project based on Diane Warren's early childhood. Yes. So is, is this in development now or have yes. you shot it? Or? Yeah, we haven't shot it. So we're, we're just um, putting it together literally as we speak. But Diane is a very, Diane, you know, super famous songwriter. One the, yeah, one of the most famous yeah. songwriters in Hollywood. Oscars for days. 14 yeah. Oscar nomination. Just won a legendary, you know, yeah. honorary Oscar. But, you know, she was told as a kid she's tone deaf. She could never make it in music. Right. Her mom didn't support her. Her dad didn't support her. You know, everybody mocked her, you know, bullied her yeah. and stuff. And even she went to Juvie Hall twice, was in prison I twice. Had no idea. She ran away from home and lived with bank robbers and junkies. I mean, she had this <laughs> crazy tough, and she still had that crazy mouth. She'll say anything, trucker's mouth, you know. So it's a very funny, but kind of outrageous story by somebody you would never expect. Well, Catherine, thanks so much. What a pleasure to speak yeah, to you. Yeah, that was so fun. Thank yeah. you. Very cool. That was Catherine Hardwick on the Richard Crow 
Krause Show. You can find her film Mafia Mama starring Tony Collette on VOD right now. A big thanks to Catherine for stopping by the studio. Also, a big thanks to Steve Ryan. Find his book, The Ghosts Who Haunt Me, wherever you buy fine books. And a big thanks to Barbie Latza Nadeau. Her book, The Godmother, is in stores right now. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.